Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. Hello, this is Father Bill Watson of the Sacred Story Institute with Jesuit Podcast. Today, we are interviewing Father Joseph Fessio in part one of a two-part interview. Father Fessio is a member of the Society of Jesus. He entered the Society of Jesus in 1961 from his junior year at Santa Clara University, where he was getting a degree in civil engineering. He went to a Jesuit high school, San Jose, in Bellarmine College Prep. Father Fessio earned a doctorate in theology from the University of Regensburg in 1975. His thesis director was Joseph Ratziger, who was then a professor, and now Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI. The subject of his thesis at the university was the ecclesiology of Hans Urs von Balthasar. Father Fessio has had a very long and productive pastoral and apostolic life. He taught theology for the first part of his career in 1976. He founded the St. Ignatius Institute at the University of San Francisco. And in 1978, he founded and became the first editor of Ignatius Press. Ignatius Press has 50 million books that they have sold since that founding in 1978, with sales of about 2 million books annually. In the following year, he became the director of Religious Books on Tape. He was also the founder in 1995 of the Autoramus Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and in 1998, he founded the Catholic Radio Network. And in this first part of the first segment of the interview, We look at his family life and vocation, his background growing up in the 40s and the 50s in a very different world than we have right now, how he discovered his vocation to be a priest in the Society of Jesus, his entrance to the Society in 1961 at the beginning of a decade of profound cultural transformation. He speaks about that and his early career People may know him as more of a traditionalist or a conservative, but he had a lot of very groundbreaking things he worked on when he was a young Jesuit in those halcyon days of the 60s and the 70s. We look at his time in the Society of Jesus and significant spiritual experiences that shaped his early life uh, in the Society. So this is part one of my interview with Father Joseph Fessio of the Society of Jesus. Very happy to have you take the time with me, Joe, and with our Jesuit podcast. This will be the first one of 2021, so I wanted to start off with somebody of significance. (laughs) And we have been acquainted with each other. We've never really crossed over in any place, but know of each other. And so I'm very grateful that you've taken the time to do this for Sacred Story Institute and our Jesuit podcast. Sure. So I want to start off with your family life. Can you Describe a bit about your family background. Sure. As a preamble, Bill, this is kind of like the exercises. And I can either go into the first week and recount all my sins from my whole past life, (laughs) or go to the fourth week and the final meditation, the contemplatio Automorum, in which you count all your blessings. So I I think because this is a public thing, uh, I'm going to go up for for the second option on that. Sounds good. I I affirm that option. But my parents were both Catholic. My dad, Italian descent. My mom, of German and French descent. Okay. And they were not practicing, they told me later on. I was their first child, and I, I went to public 
schools. But then when I was six or seven years old, they decided that they didn't want their child to live up without religion. So they started going back to the church themselves. Wow. A, a beautiful example of how children evangelize their parents and why it's important to have children when you're married, you know? Indeed, indeed. And my dad ended up being a retreat master at one of the lay persons at a retreat house. The Je- oh, my goodness. That's the Jesuit retreat house for those yeah, and, who And my mom became president of Valambrosa Retreat Center in Menlo Park. So, you know, th- their faith was nourished by the mere fact that I was there. So it was a good, and I had a bro- younger brother, Vince, and I've always been grateful for my home life, the friends I had on my block, and so we had lived in Menlo Park, California, Silicon Valley today, but in those days it was orchards. Our home was basically an old apricot orchard. Nice. We still had eight trees left. So it was a generally happy family life, and my parents were good. It wasn't a really loving family, I don't think. Okay. And I was, my brother was six years younger than I, so... There wasn't, you know, I was playing Little League and he was only three years old. So uh, there wasn't a whole big bond between us. Okay. Can I just stop you back for a minute? I find it interesting that your parents went from not practicing to eventually between becoming retreat leaders in two very important retreat centers in the area. How do you explain that? Well, uh, God's grace, of course, is the first explanation, but I explain it by the fact that our hearts are made for God and will not rest till they rest in Him. And when they got that first child, you know, that transforms people. And and so that led to the, on the path. But so they began going back to church and then, the, you know, the sacraments. They made their confessions, I suppose, became regular in their faith. And then that it just grew. That's amazing. That's a, that's a beautiful story. I'm an old guy, Bill. I got a lot of beautiful stories. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot, a lot that aren't so much, but I'm not going to talk about those. Uh, that's Jesus. Jesus sees the good, and thank God. So that's uh, interesting. So you uh, started at public schools, but you did go to a Jesuit high school in the mid to late 50s, Bellarmine in San Jose. I went to Bellarmine High School. That's exactly right. And that changed my life. And I would say, Bill, as far as my own Jesuit education, high school, college, and graduate school, I say the high school was the most important. That was the most formative for me, and especially the friends I made there. But also the, the faculty, it was almost all Jesuit at that time, and sure. the curriculum. It really was a, it was a formative time for me. You know, it's interesting. As I was born in 54. You were born in 41. I went to a Jesuit high school as well. And it was mostly Jesuit and scholastics teaching, and it is very, very formative. And I wanted to ask you, did your desire for priesthood in the society emerge in those years at Bellarmine in San Jose? No. As a matter of fact, when I got to Bellarmine, again, because of the fine education we got there, I began asking, maybe as a freshman, probably a sophomore, wait a minute, you know, I'm a Catholic because my parents are Catholic, but that's not a good reason because, you know, a Jew is you know, a Jew because his parents are Jew and a Muslim and likewise. So uh, I better figure out, and, and there's atheists too, so I better figure out if God exists or not. So that's my wow. first question. You know, I actually had, had some Jesuits help me, gave me a, you know, a book on natural theology, and I went through that. And it was clear to me then that either God exists or he doesn't. There's no in-between. It's like being pregnant. Sure pregnant or you're not. And how old How old were you when you were asking these questions? I must have been 14 years old, something that's like that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, but that, I think that's a time that kids who have been brought up in a good family and have been exposed to good literature and stories and the faith, they start to want to assimilate it or e- either accept it or reject it, you know? Sure. 
And so, to make a long story short, it seemed to me that it was very hard to believe that God exists because you can't see him. People live without him and seem to get along just fine. But on the other hand, being, things exist, things are organized. There's a design. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that this whole universe that I was learning about could just be by chance. And so that okay. was when I realized that, okay, if God doesn't exist, then religion is a hoax and you, you abandon it. If he does exist, then he's got to be the center of your life. I mean, obviously, he's the most important thing in the universe. But that did not spark any thought of a vocation. As a matter of fact, I've always been attracted to girls from grammar <laughs> school on. I dated a lot, and I intended to get married on June the 3rd, 1962. Remember, this is 55, 56. How did you select that date? And I selected that date because I figured, well, you know, 21 is the age you get married. Right. And I was born in 41, so 1962. And, and June is when people get married normally. <laughs> and three is my favorite number. <laughs> and so I actually made a, made a little resolution that I was not going to go to any marriage until I went to my own first. That was that would be the first marriage that I was going to go to. <laughs> so you selected the date, the year, the month, but didn't have anybody to necessarily to. No, uh, I, I, I was looking. I wasn't you're looking, looking okay. because I, you know, I still had some time. But there was one thing that really I think marked my whole life from early on was gratitude. I just felt so blessed that I would grow up in America. It was a free country. I had a chance to have an education. You know, my parents took care of me. I had a house, you know, to live in. I was fed. I could develop my desires and talents and inclinations. So I was very grateful to God. And I said, well, you know, I, I want to give back. I mean, I could have been born in the outback of Australia or in some, you know, tribe deep in Africa. But I wasn't. So yeah. I, I want to give back something somehow. That was sort of the seed right there of, a, of my generic vocation. Well, you know, I oftentimes quote to people in spiritual direction. I see a lot of priests for uh, diocesan priests in spiritual direction. One of the things I always mention to them is that late in his life, St. Ignatius said that he thought the worst sin that somebody could commit was a lack of gratitude. Yep. I say gratitude is the attitude. That's pretty amazing. I mean, I find it I think unusual, maybe I am reading back from our current culture back into the 40s when or the 50s when you were thinking this, but I don't think it's very common that somebody who was 14 would be contemplating these great questions and then looking forward and thinking the thoughts that you thought at the time. So I think there's something unique in that. Well, there might be, but I have to say a little confession here. I thought by the time I finished high school that I could be the smartest guy in the world <laughs> because I got I was at a Jesuit high school. I got all A's, was always top of my class, and I realized not too long after that that, yeah, I, I did well in certain things. I passed tests well, and, uh, you know, and I, I was diligent in my homework and so on. But as I got into the wider world, I realized, you know something? You're not so smart after all. And there's a lot of smart people out there and a lot of talented people. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, since then, I, I've realized that this gratitude is also expressed in appreciation. There's so many things I can't do. I can't dance. I can't sing. I can't act. <laughs> I can't play an instrument, you know. Uh, and so I, I'm, just, I'm just overwhelmed with, with joy when I see people that can do that, you know. It is amazing, isn't it? We see somebody who has a native talent, and you say, my God, how did they get, how did they get that? I know. That's great. So you uh, uh, went to high school. You obviously went to college. I see in your curriculum vitae that you studied civil engineering at Santa Clara University. I did, because, I mean, I, I took one of those aptitude, not an aptitude test, but one of those uh, 
test it, try and determine what you're good at or what you're interested in. But I always like to build things. In fact, I like to take things apart. When I was a kid, my mom used to buy junk for me, clocks and stuff, and I'd take those apart. Nice. I, I, you know, I like to work with my hands and, and, and build things or do things. You know, I, I built my own little cart with a washing machine motor on it when I was a little kid in grammar school. So anyway, I went into engineering at Santa Clara and was kind of a small, about a thousand students at the time, and we knew each other pretty well. And it had a great small engineering department. So that was an important thing for me. But then I remember when they had these job fairs for our for student, you know, for graduates or about right. to graduate, Mattel Toys came by. And a lot of the engineering students went to see, you know, what, what they could do with Mattel Toys. And I was like, gosh, do I want to spend my life building more complicated toys for American kids? I wanted something more than that. And I read a book. It was a very important book in my life. It was called The Ugly American. I remember the title. I don't remember reading it. And the two authors were Letterer and Burdick. Okay. And it was, it was about a retired engineer who went to Southeast Asia after the war, World War II, and people were struggling. And he found things like a village that was on a high bank above a river. And every day the women had to go down and carry up buckets of water up the hill. And it was just a backbreaking effort. So what he did is he, he got an old abandoned army jeep and took the engine out, made a pump out of it, attached a bicycle to it, and had those people uh, pumping the water by riding the bicycle. And then there was other people, the women whose backs were bent because they didn't have any the brooms they made. There were no long plants that they could use for broomsticks. Right. So he and his wife went and found another kind of plant. They planted that and they made tall broom, you know, tall plants with made broomsticks for them. And that changed the life of those people. I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. I wanted to go to South America and I wanted to build dams and roads for the poor. And I wanted to be a catechist. I wanted to be a lay catechist. But of course, I wanted to find a woman willing to do this. <laughs> and again, here's the smartest kid in the world thinks himself, thinking right. about this. And I developed my own philosophy of life. And here was my philosophy of life. My philosophy of life was to be happy, you need three things. You need a good wife, a good job, and a good religion. I said, well, I got the religion part down. I figured, oh, by, by the way, when I was in high school, I, I realized that God exists. I said, well, yeah, but then what, what religion is right? And, I, you know, I did a little exploration as best you could at 14 or 15. But it just seemed to me, even at that time, that of all the religious traditions, none could explain fullness of experience the way the Catholic tradition can. Okay. Just, you know, not, nothing compared. I mean, there were a lot of wonderful ones. Confucianism was great. You know, the Protestants were good too, but then where'd they come from? So it was, it was clear to me that God exists, that the Catholic Church is a religion that was established by his son, made flesh. And so that was clear. I had the religion. I said, I know I get a good job because I'm doing well in class. I didn't get all A's at Santa Clara, I'll tell you that. I learned to play a lot of cards, though. Pedro, Pinochle, and then Bridge. But you uh, were told that you'd be good at engineering. I remember when I took my aptitude test when I graduated from my Jesuit high school in Spokane, Washington, they told me I'd be good at being a welder. <laughs> so well, maybe it would be. I didn't go into welding. I went into the society, but a, a similar type of inspiration. I was a senior, March of my senior year at Gonzaga Prep in Spokane, Washington. I was watching Johnny Carson, and an ad came on for the Peace Corps, and I saw pictures of kids in Africa, and I was riveted, and I said, that's what I want to do. I want to go to Africa, and I want to serve those kids. And couldn't get to sleep that night. I was so excited. And I went to the rector of the Jesuit community, the high school, who was also a religion teacher, theology professor at the time. And I told him that I wanted to be a Marian old missionary because that's what I thought 
would best serve, because we used to get that little magazine when I was growing up. And he says, well, the Jesuits have a bigger mission program than the Marinals. And I said, I don't care. Sign me up. Sign me up for one of them. So that's how I got into the society. So it's kind of a similar inspiration of seeing people in need and wanting to do something to help them without even thinking about priesthood or religious life at the time. That reminds me, too, on the Marinols, that there was a book I read by Alfred Nevins. It was called 50 Years of Marinol Missionary, something like that, or the Golden Book, because it was Gold Anniversary. Right. And it was stories of Marinol missionaries. It was so moving. It didn't lead me to think of becoming a priest, but it, again, just like you, Bill, I wanted to do something for these people that didn't have what I had. Exactly. Very moved by that. So you didn't become a missionary in South America. Somewhere along the lines, you entered the Society of Jesus in 1961. Yes, and that's because of an event that took place on December 10th, 1960. My friends were on the basketball team at Santa Clara. I played baseball, so we were kind of the jocks, you know. Sure. Uh, and uh, my best friend, Barry Christina, was uh, was guard for the San Francisco basketball team, fantastic ball player, and lived in San Jose, which was near Santa Clara. And uh, there was a game. We used to play our games at the Civic Auditorium at San Jose. We didn't have a gym of our own that was big enough. So we arranged to have a party at Barry's house after the game, and it would be a blind date, a quadruple blind date. <laughs> how innocent and how fun. Yeah, and the best part was that we, there was a girls' high school, Holy Names, Holy Cross, excuse me, that had started in Mountain View just a few years before. And so two of the players knew girls there. So Bill Beasy was my roommate, and nice. he and I went in a station wagon and picked up four girls at Linda nice. Mariani's house. And, of course, since two of the guys were playing the game and we two were not, we kind of had first pick. You know, as we got him in the car. And so uh, I right away, I was attracted to this girl named Nancy Hardy, a very attractive girl. And she seemed pretty bright. And so we watched the game. And of course, I was distracted talking to Nancy. Right. And then after we went to the party at Barry's house and we did dancing and little things to eat and stuff like that. And I began telling Nancy about my philosophy of life. You know, I said, you know, I, I think what a man needs is a good religion and a good job and a good wife. So so we started dating. So what do you think about that, right? Well, I, I forget exactly how she reacted. She was a very she was a very, very bright young woman. She was I think she was top of her class too. And we started dating and I, I made sure to take her out on, on New Year's Eve so I could kiss her. In those days, you know, that was a pretty big deal. Right. <laughs> and then uh, we kept dating and on, So you're a, uh, you're a senior now at uh, Santa Clara? I'm a junior at Santa you're, Clara. You're a junior, okay. I'm a junior. She's, she's a senior in high school. I'm a junior at Santa Clara. And Bill had started going out with another girl named Jerry Ferrari, who's a friend of Nancy's, and uh, was on Mardi Gras. You know, Tuesday evening, we went to Jerry's house with her parents, and we had a big dinner and everything. And Bill and I drove down in his car, and we're having a good time and everything. And we're driving back, and Bill is very glum. I said, Bill, what's wrong? You know, he says, well, Jerry just told me she's going into the convent. And I, ah, I said, that's kind of you. Are you a nun? Nice going, Bill. <laughs> uh, so I, I mocked him for that, okay? Well, the following Sunday, I was at Nancy's house for dinner, and I said, I said, you know, Nancy, uh, I really want to go and, and work for the poor, build things for them, be a catechist, and you know, I think you're the kind of person who will be willing to do that with me. And she said, well, actually, you know, Joe, uh, before I met you, I'd already signed up to go to the convent. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Said, oh, no. Strike two. And I, right. <laughs> and I went back and I, I said, Bill, okay, Bill, I'm sorry about mocking you. Turned out there was a, a fantastic nun, Sister Mercedes, at this school. And they had of their graduating class, 
They had 12, which is only about 40 girls. They had 12 girls, I think, enter the convent, the Holy Names Convent at Notre Dame. So anyway. My, hot, my hot times have changed, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so in high school, I was a, I was in debating society and, you know, and original oratory and stuff. I, was, I did pretty well. And uh, so I figured, well, I, you know, I'm going to talk her out of it. That's all. You know, I, I'm going to. I'm going to give all the ways why better that we get married and have children and serve the Lord and we can have we can have everything you know that was before that you could have it all commercial but I mean it was exactly. sort of the same idea right. so I you know I, you know I began reading stuff on marriage and chastity and this and that and talking to people and talking to her and finally on Holy Thursday Eve I was in the engineering building I remember exactly where I was and I was I was sitting down my back against the wall thinking what how am I going to solve this problem and I said. I'll become a priest. That's what I'll do. And so I got up and I got in my car, 53 MG, and I raced down to Nancy's house. And it was nine o'clock at night. I knocked on the window of her bedroom. Nancy, Nancy, I'm going to be a priest. That's the edifying story. <laughs> that is pretty amazing. That'd make a nice, a nice clean movie for the ages, right? That's amazing. So you were at the time. You were 19. I was 19. Yeah. So priesthood, I'm going to be a priest, but no f particular flavor came into mind, just to be a priest. Well, you know, I because I had gone to Jesuit high school and a Jesuit university, and I, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm going to start crying. Unfortunately, this isn't on video, because I mean, I'm going to cry when I think about tremendous Jesuits in my youth. I mean, really, tremendous, tremendous men, real men. They loved us. They worked with us. They played with us. They got along together well. We had the scholastics there as well as the priests. I mean, to me, that was the only way. And I realized, you know, eventually as, as a Jesuit that, you know, my natural character, I mean, I'm, I'm tall, dark, kind of sinister, you know, <laughs> I mean, all, all the characteristics that would make a good Jesuit, right? <laughs> so, yeah, that was, uh, and I just, okay, the society, and I didn't want to... I didn't want to wait. I said, okay, I'm going to, and I went, I remember going and interviewing with this old Jesuit. He was, uh, he was kind of the patriarch of the province. And well, why don't you finish your degree? And, no, no, I'm, 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 now's your time, you know? And so I did, I entered the society in the fall of 1961. Looking back uh, to 1961, when you entered the Jesuits, uh, kind of at the beginning of what would be huge changes coming in American culture in the church, could you, could you see any of that on the horizon or was Not that? at all. I mean, I was very naive, but it's also, it was only 61. The council hadn't even started yet. Sure. And I don't know, Bill, do you have any idea how many novices there are in the U.S. today, approximately? I, I don't I don't know, but I mean, it, I think... I think it may be, may be around 60 or 80 or yeah. something like that. Yeah, well, in my novitiate, one province out of the 10 provinces, there were 104 novices. Wow, amazing. 104. I mean, it was really... And we had a fantastic master of novices, Father Ralph Biddle. And Bill, I just learned so much. You know, I mean, I, I didn't know, really know how to pray and about the history of the church and history of the society and, and spiritual life. To me, it was just a whole new world opening up. I was just, a lot of people look back at that. There were bells, you know, were very organized life. And, you know, you got up five and you, and you started praying at 530 and then the bell rang for this and that. I just found that wonderful. I said, gosh, I, I, I'm living an, a regular life, an ordered life. We had, we nice. had ordo communis, you know, we had the sure. order. I sure. thought it was great. I'm the last class 
from the Oregon province. We're now one province, California and Oregon Jesuits West, but I was the last of the classes that entered the old novitiate out at Sheridan, Oregon. So I have some connection with that older era with regards to novice formation in the early society. And and you entered, where was your novitiate? Uh, Los Gatos. Los Gatos. Okay. Yeah. Very good. You had Gordon Moreland as your, no- your Gordon novice? Gordon Moreland was my novice master. See, you had a, he, he, was, he was one of the great Jesuits and formed in the best tradition, no question about it. Incredibly bright and incredibly astute spiritual director. My measure for a spiritual guide is always goes back to Gordon Moreland. So kudos to you, Gordon, for yep. your great work. So you would have had him when you went to the Mount St. Michael's in Spokane. Was he there at the time? No, I don't think he was. That was 1964 that I went to Mount St. Michael's. Okay. I don't, I don't believe he was there. He certainly wasn't rector or minister or spiritual director or anything like that. Do you have any highlights of your time at, in Spokane at Gonzaga for with Mount St. Michael's of the philosophy program? Well, I enjoyed it very much. That was 566. So the, now, so the council would have been... Uh, it finished while I was there. We have a picture somewhere of this. It, it, it's all of us standing there. We are still in our cassocks, but it has a big sign saying, the new breed. And that was the time when I began to experience, you know tension and division within the society, those who look back at their formation as antiquated and outdated, and those of us who look back to it as a great experience in our lives of of learning, you know, about the faith and about religious life. A lot of good things happened, but I can't think of anything stands out. I went my final year that we moved down to Gonzaga to Bea House. The first year Bea House was built. Those who, who stayed for the third year for the master's degree in philosophy went down to Gonzaga. And that was an important year for me. The, you know, I, I may have seen you because I got a tour as a young teenager of the new Bea House because uh, wow. my, my dad had done some electrical work for the old mount. He worked for General Electric. So we got a tour of the, the new Bay House. So we may have even seen each other way back then. Who okay. Knows? Well, the the one thing that was significant when I was at Bay House was uh, <clears throat> we had a we had separate rooms, but there was a common shower room with, with separate stalls and everything, you know. Right. And one day I was in taking a shower and Tom Rouse, SJ, Father Tom Rouse, he was not a priest then. He was taking a shower next to me and we were talking and uh, about one thing or another. And we said, well, you know what? We're going to be going to Regency in a year. What about and for people who don't know Regency is oh, the yeah. part of Jesuit formation that comes after you do your philosophy. For us, it would have been mostly working and teaching in high schools. Right. That was what it's for us, too. But Tom and I said, well, why don't we see if we can go teach in college? That might be more exciting, you know. And so. In the shower room there, <laughs> we, we decided both to ask, do our research at college. And he was assigned to uh, Loyola Miramont, as I believe, and I was assigned to Santa Clara. That's so that, amazing. That was another turning point in my life, you know, and as a Jesuit was my, my recency there at, at Santa Clara. What did you do in Regency at Santa Clara, Joe? Did you teach civil I, engineering? I taught philosophy, and I got to know very well Father Austin Fagathy, who I had studied his classes when I was an undergraduate student, but Austin Fagby is one of the great theological philosophical pillars of the church, I think. His book, Right and Reason, I think is still the best book on ethics that you can find. Wow. And he was just just wonderful, wonderful man. There was a thing called Town and Gown, where there'd be a, you know, a sort of a lecture by someone from the university that the community around was invited to attend. And he gave this talk, and somebody asked Father Fagathy, you're teaching philosophy to a very elite group of people who are from wealthy families, and what are you doing for the poor? And he's hmm. very calm, and he's very, very thoughtful. He said, well, you know, everybody enters this world spiritually poor. They know nothing. 
we have a task to enrich them by nourishing their spiritual and their mental life. And so someone has to do that. And that is my task as a philosopher, to help those who are spiritually poor to become rich. I mean, it was a beautiful answer. It is a beautiful answer. And it's, you know, you look back on the, the legacy of the society, one of the things that people always say, what the Jesuits did for them is that they taught them to think. So giving those spiritual and intellectual tools to people who can then be transformative of culture is really what our greatest asset is, I think, as Jesuits. Exactly. I can't I can't agree more. Well, at that time, the general was Father Pedro Arupe, and he sent out some letter, I think, about the man for others. Men for was, others. Men for others. It was, it was basically in that letter or something else he wrote, he said that we should have a preferential option for the poor. We should do something for the poor. And so, you know, I, I was impressed. I thought, okay, what can I do? Throughout my life, you know, I've always thought there's a problem to solve or something I want to, you know, I, I pray about it, you know. God, give me some light on this thing. And so I came up with this idea that we'd go into East San Jose. East San Jose is about, I don't know, five, six miles from Santa Clara. But it, it was the poorest section of the whole South Bay Area. There five or six Jose. miles in distance, but about a thousand miles in terms of culture. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was and there were the poor whites, poor blacks, poor Mexicans. I mean, they, they, they were it was really a downtrodden area. So I went to... Uh, high school, I think it was called Overbrook High School. Mm-hmm. And I went to the principal and I said, look, we're going to start a program in Santa Clara in the summer. We're going to call it Project 50. It's going to be a seven-week program. I want your teachers to make up a list. I want them to list the 50 students they have that they think have college potential, but are most likely to drop out of college. And I don't care if they're black, Hispanic, white. The criterion is college ability, but likely to drop out. So they gave us a list of these 50 kids. And at that time, Santa Clara, I got to know Father Cornelius Michael Buckley, Sam Buckley. He's a little older than I am, but he became a mentor for me in many ways. And we had a lot of things called the Fezzi Buck operations. We do things together. And he, I've, so, never, I've never met him in person. I've had phone conversations with him. I think his translation of the Pilgrim Saint is one of the great Jesuit biographies of, of, of St. Ignatius. So I have yeah. great admiration for him. Well, he's done a lot, he, and he's still, he's in his 90s, and he's still at Thomas Aquinas College uh, being cha- student. Chaplain, amazing, amazing. I, I want to be that way, too. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a model for that. So we did it. We got 50 kids. We, we got five or six students that we, we paid to help us. Or maybe they were volunteers. I don't know. And we brought them on campus. We taught them, you know, remedial English and arithmetic and reading. And then sure. we took them on field trips to show them what, what opportunities were there if they had a college education. You know, we went to the various professional things and, I don't know, manufacturing plants and this and that. And then for the final week, because these kids had most of them never been outside of a city, we took them to Applegate, which is a Jesuit uh, villa in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada Mountains, beautiful rural place. Now, most people will will hear the word villa and they will think of some castle on a hill, but this is a very very rustic, more lodge-like place in the woods. Exactly. We're talking about there, so we did that for two years, and that was Project 50, which went continued after I left uh, Santa Clara. And I remember not too long ago, getting off a plane in San Francisco, and this guy said, hey, you Father Fessio? I said, yeah, I'm Father Fessio. So I, I was at Project 50. Thanks for what you did for me, you know? Wow, how nice. So that was a great consolation to see that we had some results from that. Welcome back. This is Father Bill Watson for Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast, and we are interviewing Father Joseph Fessio of the Society of Jesus. We just looked at some of his background in his growing up in the church in the 40s and 50s, 
his vocation to the Society of Jesus and becoming a member of the Society and a priest. In the second part of the interview, we're going to be looking at the abuse crisis in the Catholic Church, his analysis of why he thinks it started and what's at the root of it, his perspectives on the scandal with Cardinal McCarrick in Washington, D.C., and also his relationship with Cardinal Pell, who was charged and then acquitted of any crimes for malfeasance with underage adults in Australia. So this is Father Joseph Fessio. Well, in uh, 2002, you were on a panel at the Hoover Institution with Gary Wills and Rod oh, Schreier, yeah. that took place in the early phase of the clerical sexual abuse scandal. Uh, and we thought we'd be beyond those days, but it seems to keep staying with us. From your perch, from your years of experience, what's at the root of the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church? Well, I'm always happy when Pope Benedict Joseph Ratzinger confirms my own thoughts on things. Good, very good. Yeah. He's smart. He's smart to take your lead. In fact, when he <laughs> in fact, when he finally did his book on the liturgy, I was nervous because I thought, oh my gosh, by that time, 1999, I had had my own ideas on liturgy and I didn't want to find him disagreeing. And I read the manuscript in German. I said, oh man, I jumped up, victory sign. <laughs> he said nice. everything I've been thinking, but much better. Anyway. Well, before we, before we move from that, what were the congruence points that you saw in what he wrote and in what you thought was most important. Okay. Well, the most important thing, which I began to realize, even when I was ordained in 72, which is the Novus Ordo, you know, mass facing the people and all, you know, is that facing the Lord for the sacrifice is essential to the mass. And he says it's essential. Uh, that the liturgy of the word is when you, you're representing God to the people and you're speaking to them, they're speaking back to you, the response of the psalm and so on. But once you get the gifts, you turn, and now you're speaking for them to God. You're facing the Lord. You're facing east. You're facing the rising sun. Mm -hmm. To me, that is absolutely essential in the liturgy. I'd come to that conclusion myself in 1995. Another story there. So he ratified that in spades. I'll tell you that. Good. Excellent. We might come back to that. Let's get back to this panel in 2002 sure. and, the, and the abuse crisis in the church. Again, from your perch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's it the what you see is at the, the root of the sex abuse crisis well, in the Catholic? And, and, it's and also again, in culture at large, but in the church. This, this is confirmed by Pope Benedict in a letter he wrote last year, 2020. I, th I think it was 20, maybe 2019, which we included now as an appendix in one of our books he wrote. But basically, the crisis begins with the sexual revolution in the 60s and with the rejection of humana vitae. Because when you separate the two dimensions of sexual activity intimacy and procreation, you separate those two things, then there's no longer any justification for restraining yourself from sexual pleasure uh, because it's just another pleasure. It's not connected to procreation, not, not right. to children. And so once you do that, and I, I saw it happening in our theology programs and in, in our publications from the society, that contraception was all right. In fact, maybe the, the better thing to do in certain circumstances. And priests were teaching that. And once you separate, you know, the intimacy from childbearing, 
then how do you have a prohibition on masturbation or fornication or... Or any, any type of uh, sex which is outside of a marital context. Anything that's justifiable when you get, when you get rid of the parameters, the basic parameters of a man that, that, and woman and marriage and children. That's exactly right. And so, I mean, people say the church is focused on sex, but the problem is the church is trying to defend sex when the society is hypersexed, you know, over-focused on it. But I think almost all the problems within the church, you can pr- bring back to the rejection of Mane Vitae. So you've got contraception, abortion, which is the back to contraception, homosexuality, gender dysphoria, this whole transgender stuff. It all goes back to the fact that we deny the basic created structure of man and woman, male and female, meant to come together in union in marriage and in a marital expression that is open to life. And then you deny that. And 2002, I can tell you, before it was just before that conference you're talking about, I was driving down to give a talk at San Jose for the Human Life International Congress mm-hmm. there. And the news broke that the Boston Globe had revealed all the sexual, you know, homosexual activity. Sure. And I wept for joy because I said, we've been saying this for years. We've been telling people about this for years. No one listened. No one listens. Boston Globe does not love the Catholic Church. But thank God, finally, this has become public. Is now we can address it. Yeah. And, and don't you think, too, in terms of all of the dysfunction that we see in society, that the the breakdown of the family and the wounding that happens to children born out of wedlock that is kind of just just you know throwing fuel to the fire of all of these dysphoria issues that we see in culture right now. Bill, there's a woman named Mary Eberstadt who just wrote a great article about this. She's written books on this. This is the fundamental societal issue of this country right now is that out of wedlock births, how many children grow up in a home with a man and a woman who have been married together and stayed together? I think it's like 40% at the most, something like that. Prisons. How many people in prison don't have a father? That's like 80 or 90%. Poverty. Every time there's broken family, you've got poverty, you've got crime, you've got gangs. In fact, I was just thinking that this morning about the church teaching on contraception, abortion, and divorce. Not if, popular topics these days, but no, ones but it, we really need to defend. And thank God if, for the church to stand up for that. It, at least it'll be a core nucleus in society which will show what the path to happiness is here below as well as eternally. Yeah, you know, in some ways, revealing data is helpful to people and just instead of just affirming a truth. And I ran across a research article that said that people in monogamous committed relationships had sex more often and enjoyed it more than people <laughs> who didn't. So I think that's a good confirmation that marriage is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, everywhere you look is confirmation, either right. negative confirmation or positive confirmation. Right. By the way, that's one of my great blessings in life is both that when I was teaching at USF and teaching at Auburn University, the kids from these wonderful families, and I'm getting Christmas cards now of these wonderful families, the, the kids are having seven and you know five and six kids themselves. Yeah. It's beautiful, you know? It is. And the cheaper by the dozen, you know, it's a great blessing. I have to give so much credit to people who take the risk of getting married and take the risk of having children. And I just think it's just an, such a, the foundational vocation in the church. It's a risk, all right, but I tell you, it's a much greater risk to get involved sexually and not get married and not have That's children. That's true. Again, I think the statistics can make that case to anybody who's willing to listen to it. Back yeah. to the, uh, the sex abuse crisis, you know, I've been waiting for a year for the church to come out with their big <laughs> report on Cardinal McCarrick. Yeah. It was supposed to have been out a year ago this month, and it took more 
multiple months. Were you satisfied with that report when it came out in terms of what was in it? Honestly, I didn't read it. I read some things about it and okay. I, I knew nothing was going to change. So I go about doing my business and doing what I can. And So say you just, when I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, Tim Bush, Oh, yeah. In California, he told me that you were editing the prison journals of Cardinal Pell to be published through your press, Ignatius Press. Yes. When, Car- when Cardinal Pell had to go back to Australia from Rome to defend himself against abuse allegations, George Weigel wrote an article for National Review that was called The Persecution of George Pell. Yeah. And here's, here's a quote from that article. It says, it's not unreasonable to imagine, indeed, it's more than likely that as his reforms, his being Cardinal Pell, his reforms, financial reforms, began to threaten serious financial and perhaps legal consequences for the miscreants in the Vatican. Those determined to maintain the status quo from which they had richly benefited took care to try to derail Cardinal Pell by fostering more false allegations in Australia where, as I've just noted, poisoned ground for the reception of such calumnies as well prepared. First of all, Pell didn't have to go back. He, he voluntarily went. He could have kept asylum, you know, in the Vatican. That's a very good point to make, but he, he went back to defend himself because he knew he was innocent. And what have we learned in the last four or five months? Number one, we've learned that $700,000 went from the from Vatican to the Archdiocese of Sydney. We don't know what purpose. And we just found out that $1.7 billion went from the Vatican to Australia during the time that these accusations were ramping up. That's, now, that's, that's just a I have not heard that. It doesn't prove anything, but it certainly confirms my suspicions. Interesting. Good suspicions. There's a thing called Austrack. It's a, the Australian government's tracking of foreign investment and foreign transactions. They made public the fact that $1.7 billion came from the Vatican. Now, maybe it was just investing in mining or something like that. I don't know. But, but even it, then. It should be public record in terms of what, what the investment was. So that'd be worth uh, doing. If you find out anything specific, I will put that in the footnotes of the of the blog report here that we're doing. Okay, good. You know, in terms of that that article titled by George Pell, The Persecution of George Pell, George Pell uh, took what happened to him with such grace, and you've worked on his newly released prison diaries. How does somebody go through that and maintain their magnanimity of heart and their capacity to forgive? What have you seen in his well, writing? George Pell is a very close friend of mine. I know him well, and I've spent time with him in Australia and here and in the Vatican. Uh, Not a lot of time, but he is a deeply good man, and he's a manly man, and he's a man of complete integrity and wonderful sense of humor. He just does what's right, and he doesn't care what people say. He will do the right thing and take the consequences, whatever they may be, from from public acclamation or public hatred. Sure. He's a he's a real man of the church. He's a good man. He's golden. It, you know, it didn't look like when those uh, trials were going on. It didn't look like he was going. It looked like he was going to be in jail for the rest of his life. No, no, no. Six years. Six years. But in terms of the way that the courts were turning. And appeal after appeal being over, you know, denied. It looks yeah. like it looked like he would never be cleared. That's right. Oh, he'd be guilty and he'd serve his time. That's right. And he was in for six years. No, no, no. He was sentenced to six years, okay. and he was in for a little over a year. In in pretty uh, terrible treatment in terms of what I've read about. Uh, no, no, not not that bad. And he you'll say that you know one one person okay. better than another, and uh, they they were basically fair to him. But okay. I mean, they put him in solitary confinement because they want to protect him because he was, you know, pu- the public image was he was a child molester. 
Well, anyway, what what is your biggest takeaway? Will there be uh, there's going to be several volumes of these diaries, won't there? Three. Three of them. Have you read all of them, all the yes. material? Yep, I what, have. What, what's your greatest takeaway from all three in terms of kind of looking at it as a whole? He's just a wonderful, he's a great man. Uh, it's beautiful what he's writing. I mean, he'll, he'll, he'll write about the readings for the day. You can't say mass every day, but he'll, he'll listen to it and then he'll comment on the readings and then he'll comment on sports and then he'll do something about philosophy or a book he's reading. It's an insight into, into a beautiful Catholic mind, always with a sense of humor. It's just fascinating reading. Do you have a sense he will be rehabilitated in Rome? Will he get his position back in terms of the financial issues, or has that been passed over to somebody else now? Well, he, you know, he and I are the same age, which is 79 or 80. Okay. So he's not looking for a big job at this point. <laughs> no, and I don't think he can be given one normally in the way they work you know, in Vatican. But I, I think his being there is, is influential. This has been Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast with Father Bill Watson. If you liked our program, please subscribe to our podcast channel. And may God bless you.